Well, chapter 4 and verse 1 of Revelation begins with these two words, after this. And just like I so often joke with you, when we see therefore, we got to ask what it's there for. There are little things like this that tell us um, that we should consider another section of text. After this raises the obvious question, well, after what? And so we need to remember that chapters 1 to 3 precede chapter 4. After what John had just experienced and just heard. And so just briefly, by way of review, John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And in chapter 1 and verse 10, we read that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard behind him a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. So in chapter 4, when he says... um, In verse 1, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, we know that he's referring back to the events of chapter 1 and the voice which in chapter 1 had spoken to him like a trumpet. And who did that turn out to be? That voice who had spoken to him like a trumpet in chapter 1 is the resurrected Christ Jesus, but not appearing as he did in the garden that first day when Mary mistook him for the gardener. Not in the, the form in which he appeared to the man on the road to Emmaus when he said, why are you looking so sad? And I said, well, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened in these last couple of days? And they, they responded to him and treated him and interacted with him like a mere man. We know that Jesus is a man. Even presently, this very day, Jesus is a man. He did, not, he did not merely take on the appearance of a man temporarily, like uh, some kind of uh, mask, which he put on and then, and then put off. But we know that in the incarnation, he became man. And yet, we also know that Jesus is not mere man. Not mere man. For, as John Stott put it, remaining what he was, he became that which he was not. And so... John sees the resurrected man, Christ Jesus, but he sees him in his unveiled glory. And we speak, theologians speak of the hypostatic union, which is the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity, two natures in one person, Christ Jesus. And so John sees Jesus exalted and he recognizes in this portrait that he is not a mere man. In fact, the language of chapter 1 used to describe Jesus is the language used way back in Daniel to describe the Ancient of Days. And so John has beheld the glorious, resurrected, exalted Christ who is one with the Father and the Spirit. This is basically what takes up chapter 1. I'm not going to re-preach that whole section. But Jesus, in this exalted state, speaks to John and tells him to write seven letters to seven first century churches. And we've looked at these over the last number of weeks. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John has been, was worshiping the Lord, saw a vision of the resurrected Christ, and just received these seven letters. And remember that John didn't receive these 
seven letters over seven Sundays, each a week apart, in which he had time to think about them and digest them, the way that we've been dealing with them. John received them all at once. And so he beholds this glorious vision of Christ Jesus and and hears what Jesus wants to write to these seven churches. And he's heard it all at once. And then we read, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open heaven in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking me to, to me like a trumpet, again reminding us that it's Jesus still speaking, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Remember, that's the theme of the book of Revelation, isn't it? If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which I think means the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So now, after seeing this initial vision and after receiving the revelation that, that Christ wants to record, it, to record and to send to these seven first century churches, now Jesus says, now come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Let's just pause right there. John surely must have felt overwhelmed. Surely. We know, in fact, in, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, that when he first saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, though dead, as though dead. He basically, I think he basically means he passed out. <laughs> right? And so there is this supernatural strengthening of John, surely which enabled him to even hear what Christ spoke to these seven churches. And yet there is still, surely, this overwhelmed feeling that John must have at this juncture. What about you? As you consider what we have spoken about over the last nine or ten Sunday mornings, looking at this study of Revelation, what about you? Are you overwhelmed? The content of chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation is overwhelming, after all. Sure, there's encouragement. We've seen that Christ is so glorious. We've, we've looked at the glory of Christ in various ways and from various angles. And we've seen <coughs> that Christ and His kingdom truly are, as Jesus Himself put it in that parable, a pearl of great price, which we could joyfully go and sell everything else we have to obtain. We've seen the the glory and the beauty and the worth of Jesus and the glorious end of all things reiterated over and over again in the letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3 to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes and the various types of rewards enumerated over and over again. We've been told, hey, it's going to be worth it. So yeah, there's been lots of encouragement in these first three chapters of Revelation. But we've also seen much that could overwhelm us. John calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation. And this isn't talking about something at the end of time. Otherwise, how would John be a partner in it? It's talking about something that's happening right now. The in-between. 
Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, during which time there's difficulty, there's trouble, there's tribulation. John was our partner in that. He's on the island of Patmos, not because he's on vacation and booked a ticket there. He's on the island of Patmos because he's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And so he is a partner with these first century churches in the tribulation that they were in. And he's a partner with us in the tribulation that we're in. There is a need, as we saw when we looked at that section of text in Revelation chapter 1, there is a need for patient endurance in between Jesus' first and second coming. There is a necessity of contending against false doctrine and immorality in the church. We've seen this in the letters to the various churches in chapters 2 and 3. We should find that church is a safe haven from the world in which we can go and, and, and find godly examples of Christian living and sound doctrine taught to us. And yet, there are Jezebels in the church. There are Nicolaitans in the church perverting and distorting the gospel. And so we have this necessity of contending against false doctrine and immorality in the church. Which implies and necessitates that at times we will experience opposition even from fellow believers. Moreover, there will be opposition from those outside the church. Both secular and religious. We've seen the persecution of the Roman Empire in these first few chapters of Revelation. Those who do not name the name of Christ, but are secular and persecute those of the faith. We've also seen persecution from what Jesus calls a couple times the synagogue of Satan. People of other religions who will persecute us. So there's this contending for the doctrine and contending for holiness and ethical right living inside the church. There's persecution from those outside the church. Then there's the necessity of fighting the war within. That your love may not grow cold. That your motives would remain pure and that you wouldn't end up just going through the motions with Jesus on the outside knocking to be let back in because somehow, as the years have gone by, you've put Jesus out of your church and you're just playing church and going through the motions. There's the necessity then of receiving the discipline of the Lord Jesus when we wander. Fighting that fight within, which is constantly waging between the flesh and the spirit. For all of this, we will give an account. We've been told over and over again that Jesus knows all and sees all and will hold us to account. That he's, He walks among the lampstands and He will hold us to account. When you think about this, the, the sum total of everything we've been thinking about over the last 9-10 weeks, it's overwhelming. And what's coming in the book of Revelation as we continue in our study is further overwhelming. What can steady us? We need a big vision of God to steady us. And that's exactly what we have here in Revelation chapter 4. Jesus shows John the heavenly throne room 
in Revelation chapter 4 as a bit of a rest stop on an exhausting journey. When I was a kid, I'd go for long drives on the main highway in Ontario, which is called the 401. It's like comparable to an American interstate. And they've, they've changed the name now. The abbreviation for Ontario is ON. And so they've now changed the name to a catchy on route, Ontario route, which is, which is catchy. But when I was a kid, they used to be called rest stops. And basically, they're, you, don't even have to, you don't even really have to exit the highway. There's just kind of an off-ramp, and there's a parking lot there, and there's a couple of maybe places to get food. Obviously, Tim Hortons is going to be there, be in Canada and all. And then there's you know bathrooms and whatnot. And then you basically just get right back on the on-ramp. So you, they're very convenient. You could, you could take the time to get off the highway at any other exit and make a couple of turns and go into a city, but it takes a lot of time. These rest stops are just a brief little jog off the highway where you can use the bathroom or whatever if you have to get a bite to eat, get a coffee, and get right back on. Revelation 4 is like a rest stop. Revelation 4 is like an en route. We're still very much making progress, but we are taking a little rest stop on an otherwise overwhelming and exhausting journey. And there will be these little rest stops, these little en routes as we go. Commenting a little late on a later section of Revelation, Joel Beakey says, catching even a momentary glimpse of God's goodness and greatness and of the might of His kingdom is just what we need to reassure us to strengthen our faith and to deepen our hold on the hope of glory. As I said, that's what we have here in Revelation 4. A momentary glimpse of God's goodness and greatness and of the might of His kingdom. A big vision of God to steady us and reassure us after some overwhelming stuff and before some more overwhelming stuff. So let's examine this vision in, in Revelation 4 in a little bit closer detail. Specifically, let's look at some aspects of this vision. And with it being Revelation and all, I thought seven aspects of this vision might be appropriate. All jokes aside, there are seven in the text, and I would, I would, never, I would never artificially come up with that number. <laughs> First one is, the appearance of the throne and he who sat there. Look at verse 2 of Revelation chapter 4. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, what's the first thing he sees? A throne. A throne. Just if we just stop right there. The first thing that John sees in heaven is a throne. With one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Look, there is a throne in heaven. And he who sits... Well, first of all, there is one who sits on it. It's not an empty throne. It's not a vacant, vacated throne up in heaven. There's a throne up there, and there's someone sitting on it, first of all. Note that. The one who sits there is not portrayed to us as an unimpressive little guy. We don't really have a very thorough description here, but we have, we have this. 
he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. As we go on, we'll read more about the, the bigness and the greatness and the glory of this one and, and of his throne. But these precious stones are used to describe glory, beauty, excellence, value. The one who sits on the throne is not weak and unimpressive. He's not unvaluable. He's not not glorious. As we make our way through Revelation, we want to be cautious not to explore every tiny little detail. Like, what does, what does the jasper mean? What does the carnelian mean? You know, the, what does the emerald mean? We don't, want, we don't necessarily want to press for that level of detail in, as we go through our study of Revelation. But the impression that you get of the one seated on the throne whose appearance is like precious stones. That right there is a sufficient level of interpretation that's going to keep us uh, grounded as we go through Revelation and not speculative. You can, you can understand that value, glory, beauty, all of these things are being communicated. right? And we don't need to stray into the speculative realm. So there is a throne. There's someone on it. And he who sits on the throne is glorious. Secondly, there's seven, so I've got to touch them all briefly, right? Secondly, the rainbow in chapter 3, or sorry, in verse 3. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Well, this rainbow is best understood in conjunction with the lightning and the thunder that we read about in verse 5. And that's our third aspect of this vision. As we go on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see this language several times. Which is in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I pointed out as uh, I introduced the book that there are several cycles in the book of Revelation. And there's always the language as one cycle ends and a new one begins. There's always the language. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 5, for example. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And several times we find that repeated. It indicates to us the end of a cycle, which we'll elaborate on more as we go through. But it's obviously cataclysmic language. And much of what is in the book of Revelation is the judgment of God. And where do do these flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder come from? Revelation chapter 4 tells us they come from the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So whoever the instrument is in the rest of the book, or whatever it is which particularly causes or or precipitates these lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5 tell us that ultimately, 
Where does, where does the judgment of God come from? It comes from the throne. So the judgment of God is, is symbolized by those things. And we circle now back around to the rainbow in, chapter, in uh, verse 3, which I told you is best understood in conjunction with these things. Think back to Noah's day. What did the rainbow symbolize? It was God's covenant faithfulness, wasn't it? It was mercy. It was, it was God's promise that He would never again cataclysmically destroy the earth the way that He had done in the flood. The rainbow was a symbol of that. That though there would be judgments, there wouldn't be entire, total judgments the way that there had been. And that there would be the preservation of life in the midst of whatever judgments God might send. In other words, the rainbow being a symbol of God's promise never to flood the earth like that, being a symbol of of God's promise to preserve life, understood in conjunction then with the judgments of the lightnings and the flashes or and the peals of thunder and whatnot, the the rainbow symbolizes what? Mercy. So where does the judgment come from? God's throne. And yet what is also around God's throne according to Revelation chapter four and verse three? Mercy. Right? You see you see how we're doing as we go through here? We're not being radically speculative. We're seeing, we're making reasonable inferences about the imagery and the symbolism without straying into the radically speculative. And yet we're also finding that we're understanding something intelligible and helpful as we go. 24 elders. This is the fourth aspect of this vision that we want to see. The 24 elders in Revelation 4 and verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Well, there are various guesses about who these elders might be, but I am not permitted time-wise to go into all of the various options, nor do I think that there's any compelling reason to do so. I think that the, the correct interpretation will become fairly obvious as we consider theologically what would be the most fitting and then as we compare with uh, the number 24 in Revelation, I don't think we're going to be at a great loss here. So let me just tell you what I think is the correct interpretation. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and begin reading at verse 11, Paul is writing to Gentile Christians. And he says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, who? Call it out. The Gentile Christians. Right? Remember that you, verse four, or, pardon me, verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you Gentile Christians were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. That was the situation of the Gentile Christians. But what changed? What did Jesus change? Well, let's look at Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off from what? Go back to Ephesians 2 and verse 12. What were they once far off from? Christ, the commonwealth of Israel, and the covenants of promise. Right? Ephesians 2 and verse 13 says, But now in Christ, you who were once far off from these aforementioned things, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what have, they, what have the Gentile Christians now been brought near to? Christ. And in Christ, the commonwealth of Israel. And the covenants of promise. Listen. Some people want to make a really radical distinction between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God. A really radical distinction between Israel and the church. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, the Gentiles were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were once alienated from the covenants of promise, the covenants of promise being those promises given to Abraham and to, uh, pardon me, the, the covenants given to Abraham, to Moses, and so forth, right? But now the Gentile Christians have been brought near to those things. So the Gentile Christians have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. We can now look at those Old, covenant, or those Old Testament covenants and we can say, hey, we've been brought near to those things because of Christ. They have reference to us and not just to those who are ethnically Jewish. There are not two programs of God, one for ethnic Israelites and one for Christians. Rather, there is one program, one purpose of God. There is one people of God, not two peoples of God. The people who believe in the covenants of promise. The people who believe in the Jewish Messiah, whether they be ethnically Jew or ethnically Gentile, those people have been brought near by Christ to the commonwealth of Israel, to the covenants of promise. Lest you think that I'm making inferences which are unbiblical based on the exposition of Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Well, let's go on and read what is not implied and able to be inferred, but let's read about what is explicit. For he himself, verse 14 of Ephesians 2, who's that? Christ. For he himself is our peace. Peace between who? What's the context? Peace between Jews and Gentiles. Right? For he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2, 14, who has made us both one. Who's us both? Jews and Gentiles. Right? And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentile Christians living in Ephesus, Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So theologically, there's not two peoples of God. Theologically, there's not two different plans and purposes of God, one for the ethnic Jews and one for the church, one for Israel and one for the church. Theologically, God has made... Gentile Christians part of Israel. And all of the covenants that were made, which promised blessedness and and gave hope to the ethnic Jews in Old Testament times, even Gentile Christians can claim as belonging to them and being their own through Christ Jesus. And so what we find is there's not two peoples of God, there's one. Now, if I were to say to you, what number would be fitting to describe the sum total of the people of Israel? What might you say? Someone said it. Twelve. Now, what number might be symbolically fitting to describe the total number of the new covenant people of God? Twelve. Lo and behold. Alright, so... 12 uh, tribes of Israel, right? 12 children of Israel, 12 tribes, and 12 apostles. All right, so let's put 12 and 12 together. I don't have a calculator up here, but can anyone do that for me? 12 plus 12? 24. There we go. So, theologically, before we even compare any other section where we might find 24 in Revelation... We might just say theologically, look, if there's a bunch of people in heaven represented by 24 leaders, we might say, well, that would be the 12 children of Israel plus the 12 apostles who are symbolically the leaders and figureheads of the sum total of the people of God. That would be a pretty good guess already. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 to 14... I think we find this interpretation confirmed. Let's begin at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and having, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So what we, what we see here again at the end of Revelation is what we've seen theologically already 
in Ephesians chapter 2. We see the, that there is not this really radical distinction between Israel and the church. There's not this really radical situation where the Israelites end up with one destiny and the church ends up with another destiny. Rather, we see that it is the 12 apostles of the Lamb and the 12 sons of Israel who together comprise and make up, symbolically, the structure of the new Jerusalem. It is the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles who are the true Israel of God. This is the witness of Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so, the 24 elders symbolize the leaders of the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. And so we are to see that around the throne are the people of God. We just talked about the lightning and thunder being God's judgment and the rainbow being His mercy. We talked about how both judgment and mercy proceed from the throne. We're about to read in chapters 5 through 22 about a lot of judgment. But we need to see that in heaven right now, right now, are trophies of God's mercy. If we were caught up through a door into heaven, as John was in Revelation chapter 4, we would see a throne with a glorious being on it. And we would see, hey, the people of God are there. And that's a real encouraging thing. Remember, as we saw in chapter 1 of Revelation and verse 4, the Spirit of God is before His throne. Who else is before His throne? The people of God. Right? I pointed that out when we were talking about that section. The Spirit of God spatially is envisioned in the same place as where the people of God are. As the judgments are being poured out, as the lightning and the thunder is being poured out on this world, there is a rainbow around God's throne. Mercy surrounds Him. And His Spirit is before His throne in chapter 1 and verse 4. And His Spirit is before His throne in chapter 4 and verse 5. As the lightning and the peals of thunder are poured out upon this world, so has the Holy Spirit been poured out upon this world. And in the midst then of the, the lightning and the thunder that we're about to read about in Revelation 5-22, through 22, the Holy Spirit is at work in the midst of it all. Bringing people to faith. Drawing people to Christ Jesus in accordance with the rainbow that surrounds God's throne. In accordance with the mercy that is in heaven. So that we might be gathered up, as it were, to sit with the elders around the throne of God. Alright, time for a little bit of a quick review. The aspects we've covered so far. The appearance of the throne and he who sat there was the first one. The rainbow 
was the second one. The lightning and thunder was the, sec was the third one. The fourth one was the 24 elders. The fifth one was the Spirit of God. Now we come to the sixth aspect of this vision that we're going to explore this morning, which is the four living creatures. If I stopped where we are, you'd be encouraged and you'd think, okay, I understand a great deal of Revelation 4, but you'd go, but what about the living creatures? Because they're an obvious, obviously big part of Revelation chapter 4. So if, if we want to catch this whole vision, we need to give some attention here. Around the throne, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, there are two Old Testament passages alluded to in the description of these four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. Can anyone name one of them? That was one I was not expecting to hear. Ezekiel. We'll come to that in a second. The, fir the first one that I, th that I was expecting some of you might call out, is Isaiah, chapter 6. Let's turn there first. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Sounds familiar, right? And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's an unmistakable correlation between Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. We're in the throne room of God, and there are creatures with six wings singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's an unmistakable correspondence. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. The second one, which I didn't expect, so bonus points to Shamar. I didn't, I didn't even put two and two together on this one. I had help from the commentaries making this connection. The second one is Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 1, the whole chapter really goes on about four living creatures. Verse 5 introduces us to them. From the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. It goes on to describe their appearance, which doesn't exactly correspond to the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 1. But there's enough correspondence that we have to, again, we have to see a clear Allusion to this passage in Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> Let me point out a couple of things about their appearance though. In verse 6 of Ezekiel chapter 1, 
We're told that they have four wings. Two wings to fly and two over their bodies. This is in Ezekiel 1 and verse 11. Now, let me ask a question here. Why would the four living creatures in Revelation have six wings? And the seraphim have six wings in Isaiah 6. And yet the four living creatures in Ezekiel 1 only have four wings. I believe that the answer lies in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 22. Let me read this. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. Now, let me flip you back to Revelation chapter 4. Before the throne, this is verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Ezekiel 1, 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. Alright, let me try to pull this together here. In Revelation, we're not told that they're seraphim. We're told that they're living creatures. But they have six wings. And in Revelation 6, we're not told what they use their wings for. In Isaiah 6, we're told that it is the seraphim around God's throne who have six wings. So I don't believe it's a big jump to say, all right, well, then in Revelation 4, we're talking about the seraphim, these six-winged creatures around God's throne. In Isaiah 6, we're told what they use their wings for. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So he covers, so he uses two to fly, all right? That's pretty reasonable. Don't want to drop. So you've got two wings to fly. With two, he covered his feet, or himself. And with two, he covered his face. Now, I believe that the right way to understand that covering his face is reverence. For the holiness of God, this thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy. That in the presence of God, he wouldn't even look directly at him, but would cover his face with two wings. Holy, holy, holy. I'm not even worthy to look at the brilliance of God. Alright? I don't think we're being too speculative so far. Ezekiel has... These same creatures, who have to be the seraphim. These six-winged creatures, who in Revelation 4 are around 
God's throne and in Isaiah 6 are around God's throne. But where are they in Ezekiel's vision? Well, they are by the Kibar Canal in the land of the Chaldeans. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3. So where are they not? In the throne room of God. So, why is it that Ezekiel may have perceived them as having only four wings? Because they still need to fly, and they still cover their bodies, but their faces are not covered. Why? Because they're not in the very presence of God. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures... There was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. Where is that same crystal sea in Revelation 4? It's under them. You see? In Revelation 4, we see the seraphim above the sea of crystal, in the very presence of God, flying with two, covering themselves with two, and using the last two to cover their face because they're in the presence of the thrice holy God when they are below the sea of crystal and the sea of crystal is above them and they're not up in the heavenly throne room but are appearing to Ezekiel by the Kebar canal in the land of the Chaldeans with two they fly and with two they cover their bodies and Ezekiel just doesn't see the last two imagine for a second you've never seen a bird before and you just saw a pigeon walking. If you had never seen one fly, you might not even know they have wings, would you? Because they're just tucked away. They're not in use. And uh, it's like maybe the first time you saw a cockroach. And you, you said, well, I'm going to go over and squish that thing. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, it flies. <laughs> this thing has wings. Right? When they're tucked away, you might not even know they're there. And what a big surprise it is to a small toddler. Or what a big surprise it is to a young lady when she goes to try to kill a cockroach. When lo and behold, this thing has more wings than I thought it did. Right? I think it's very reasonable to assume in, symbolic, uh, in a symbolic vision that he, see, he, he notes four because he saw four in use. And the last two, which were used to shield their eyes from beholding directly with unveiled faces the glory of God, those wings were tucked away. This points us towards the glory of God. This points us towards the absolute majesty and splendor of God. We've seen it symbolically in all of these symbols as we've worked our way through Revelation chapter 4. We see it in the way that even the seraphim, these glorious creatures, hide their face from Him. But we see it explicitly in the doxologies in verses 8 and 11. And this is the seventh and final aspect of this vision that we'll look at today. (coughs) Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We don't even need to interpret any symbols here. We just listen to what we're told by the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is separate in a category of His own. This is one meaning of holy. 
that something is set apart. Like even there were like tools and things that were marked as holy under the old covenant tabernacle system that you couldn't just go get a holy spoon and use it to eat your breakfast. That it was set apart for the tabernacle work. Likewise, in a similar way, we could, we could understand the set-apartness of God. There is none like God. He makes this point to us over and over again in the Scriptures. There is no one like me. To whom will you compare me? Holy, holy, holy. And then, of course, morally pure, which is what we typically think of when we think of holy. And in that sense, God is morally pure three times over. There's no blemish in Him. There is no spot or wrinkle in Him. He is holy, holy, holy. Well, was He always this way? Will He always be this way? Verse 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It doesn't change. What we see here is the holiness of God. What we see here is the immutability of God, which is a big word, which simply means there is no shadow of turning with thee. There is no change in God. Holy, 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 immutable. Worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. So He is the holy God. He is the immutable God. This God is the creator of all things. And how did He create? With the materials that He found in His shed? With pre-existent matter? According, According to this passage... Things came into existence by His will. There's a lot of talk these days about decreeing and declaring. But look, I want you to will anything into existence. I'm not talking about willing, I'm not even talking about willing something to happen. Not that you can do that either. But for the sake of this science experiment, if you will. I'm not even talking about that because whatever you might will into existence, there's already existing parts. Or, pardon me, whatever you might will to happen tomorrow, there's already existing parts. It would involve someone who exists or something who exists. What I'm talking about is sit down this afternoon, if you don't believe me, sit on your couch and will, for example, a golf ball into existence in front of you on the floor. Just, well, that might be too tough. Let's just make it a marble. You know what? Let's just, make it, let's just make it a grain of sand. Just, just a grain of sand. Just will it into... You know what? Let's even just go down to a molecule. Just a molecule. The reality is you can't will even a molecule into existence. But this passage tells us that God willed everything into existence. We read elsewhere that He upholds the universe. By the word of His power. Which means not only did He will them into existence, but it is by His will that they continue to exist. And so God here is, in this passage, 
the thrice holy, immutable or unchangeable, and sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. Two takeaways from that and we close. First is he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Right? Who could argue otherwise? So question, are you honoring him? Ascribing to him glory and honor and power? If you are not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, you are refusing to give Him the glory and honor and power that He is due. To ascribe to Him the glory and honor and power that He's due. Jesus tells a story where a guy owned a vineyard far away and he wanted, he wanted to reap some of the harvest from the vineyard. Go get some of the grapes and if, you, if, if they don't have enough grapes, well, bring back some of the cash flow then from the vineyard that I own. Go, go get a little something from my vineyard. So he sends a servant, and they beat him up and send him back to his master. He sends another one, and they beat him up and send him back to his master. He says, well, look, let me send my son. Surely they will respect my son. So he sends his son to the vineyard, to his employees. But they say, look, let's beat up or sorry, let's, let's kill the son. And that way, maybe the vineyard will be ours. We'll be next in line for the inheritance because there will be no longer anyone to inherit it. See how ridiculous that logic is, right? Look, this God in Revelation 4 has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to this world and finally sent forth his son. If you will not respect his son, you are not respecting this God of Revelation chapter 4. He has reached out to this world in His Son, ultimately, first and foremost. You need to trust in Jesus, turn from your sins, and come into a relationship, not of defiance or disregard, but into a relationship of ascribing to Him the glory and honor and power He's due as the God who is thrice holy, unchangeable, sovereign, from whom both judgment and mercy come. Lay hold of the mercy that He's offered to you in Christ and ascribe to Him glory and honor and power. And if you're already a believer, don't forget that this is what we are to be doing. Again, like we've seen in the letters to the churches of Revelation, it's so easy to get off this way or that way. Get off the right path this way or that way. Ascribe to God glory and honor and power. This is what we should be doing. The second takeaway is more textual, um, sorry, more textually related to the rest of the book. Again, this is a rest stop. This is an en route after chapters 1 through 3 and before chapters 5 through 22. This is a doctrinal application. Recognize that whatever comes in Revelation 5 to 22, which we're about to study, comes from the throne room of God. Comes from this thrice holy, unchangeable, sovereign creator who is surrounded by mercy and justice. Which means what is 
happening and what is unfolding in our world today comes from this throne room and this God. That will be encouraging to us as we continue our study of Revelation. And it ought to be encouraging to us as we live out our daily lives.